This is Beyond Your Limits with Rob Dubois. The podcast that helps you destroy self-limiting beliefs, unchain your potential, and create the meaningful life you were made for. And now here's your host, Navy SEAL founder of Impact Actual and the Impact Unchained course, Rob Dubois. Before I became a SEAL in the Navy, I was an NSA guy for 10 years. And in those 10 years, I had a relationship. And in that relationship, we went pretty serious. She and I got serious for a while and and learned a lot about each other, et cetera. And I had the opportunity to hang out with her in her barracks room one day, and she was showing me a, a, a photo album of the family. And I'm leafing through it as she asked me to. Here's my dad. Here's my mom, et cetera. And I happened to flip one page while she was across the room doing something on the desk. And I saw an 8 by 10 of a gorgeous, like model-ready, big, muscular black dude in his tidy whities on a bed smiling at the camera. Like, kind of like that little teenage girl thing, lying on her tummy, feet up in the air, hands on chin, kind of just adorable. And I I was confused. And I, I said, is this this family? She said, oh, my God, I'm so sorry. I left that in there. That's Tim or whatever his name was, a past boyfriend. And I said, oh, okay. Okay. I flipped on, but something planted itself inside of me. Something painful planted itself inside. Cause I was a skinny little white kid at the time, early twenties, no muscles to speak of, no credentials, no accomplishments, nothing that I could compare to the man I had just seen this incredible specimen of manhood. And I thought, okay, well, whatever, moving on. She's my girlfriend now. And you know, that that's a past thing, but I was too immature to understand what I was processing. And what I was dealing with was pain, insecurity, doubts, fears, a sense of inadequacy. Like I can't compare to that guy. I'm, I don't look anything like him. I'm never going to look like him. Even if I bulk up, she likes that. That's what's in her, in her, you know, her menu of guys she likes to go out with. And I'm not that, but I tucked it away stuffed it down, no big deal, didn't process and talk about it with her like, hey, I feel I feel insecure. Like I've learned to do that now in recent years. By God's grace, I talk to my partner and I say, hey, this is what I'm feeling, my whole range of positive and negative feelings. So fast forward a couple of months, we're in San Francisco and walking up and down the hills and looking at the beautiful bay and hearing the seals. And we passed a man I didn't even notice until what she did happened. We walked past him. There's a, there was a gentleman standing on the sidewalk who was a gorgeous, model-ready, super handsome, super buff black man in a short t-shirt and jeans leaning against a, probably a $30,000 Harley. I mean, it was like literally a photo shoot kind of a picture for a guy, something out of Men's Quarterly or GQ. And I didn't, again, I didn't notice him. There's people everywhere. We, we walked past him and she made this really poor judgment moment. And as we passed him, as if she was walking with a girl, a girlfriend, she made the comment, yum. I suddenly remembered everything in one moment. The yum was like, what is she? Oh, oh, she's talking about that guy. She's saying it to me, her current skinny little white boy boyfriend. And I flashed back, rewound instantly to that moment of shock and surprise and inadequacy and fear, uh, insecurities from the photo. Another guy who was very similar. Now, these are two isolated cases of, of happen to be good looking men. I don't care white, black, or Hispanic, or Polynesian. There's a lot of guys that are better looking than me and better built than I am. 
But the two events stacked on top of each other, and I didn't even notice it for, for a long time. About a year after that, I experienced this sense of dislike for men who looked like that. And I caught myself processing that one day. It shocked me, shocked me because I, it wasn't who I was. I was a guy who'd been around all races, all ethnicities, all gender preferences and, and types and everything in the world. And I thought I was very open-minded, but I actually became tainted. I became bigoted or, or biased against guys who were gorgeous and black. Um, I rarely ever talk about this except in private conversations, but today the conversation must happen. Today I'm telling you this story. Now, by God's grace, I came out of that phase, but like you see in Powerful Peace, I talk about it in the book we published 10 years ago, and I'm going to be talking about celebration of that 10-year anniversary this next month. There are unconscious bigotries, unconscious biases, and our guest today is a man who is an absolute expert in understanding bias, bigotry, and the unconscious hatreds that are actually formed from fears, fear and pain. And as Arno has taught me, hurt people hurt people. Arno Michaelis is a speaker and author of My Life After Hate, the co-author of The Gift of Our Wounds, a filmmaker and a peacebuilding consultant. In the late 80s and early 90s, he was a leader of hate groups and frontman of the hate metal band Centurion before single parenthood, love for his daughter, and the forgiveness shown by people he once hated helped to change his world, bringing love for diversity and gratitude for all life. And as you say, Arno, life is generally good, right? Welcome to the show. Thanks, Rob. It's great to see you. Great to talk to you. And uh, I appreciate that story you shared also. It's um, very vulnerable, very profound, and, and uh, I absolutely agree that it's something we need to talk about nowadays. Doesn't that go right to the, without the specificity of the events I experienced and the, and what I'm able to share about what I'm, I'm, I'm ashamed of that. Of course I'm ashamed of that. I, I don't want to hate, you know, a million men just because something happened to me, a couple of flickers of, of experience, but, but the fear, the insecurity, the self doubt that I carried with me before I had those experiences is that, I mean, I want to hear everything you can share today. Is that, is that something you're familiar with? Something you recognize as being at the roots of so much bias? Yeah, absolutely. And, and I'm familiar with it because it, as a white nationalist from 1987 to 1994, my life revolved around race. Race was the only thing that mattered to me. It, in fact, we, we, our litmus test for every decision we made, and, and I don't even know how you would answer this question honestly, but we would ask ourselves, is this good for the white race? Yes. If yes, then you do it. If no, then you don't do it. Right. Uh, so arbitrary. Everything was seen through a racial lens. In the story you're describing, I would not have noticed or even admitted that uh, the men in question were good looking, that they were muscular, that they were successful, uh, You know, at least in the case of the second guy who had the nice bike. I wouldn't have noticed any of those other traits, which honestly are just as important as the amount of melanin this man may or may not have had in his skin. I only would have saw skin color. And, and that's why I, I'm all too familiar with the, the dehumanizing effects that race has. And I'm very intentional here in, in saying just race. Racism can't happen without race. And I think uh, a big issue in our society today is that there's a lot of really well-meaning people 
who seem to think that race is some kind of solution to racism when actually it's a product of it. And I, I it's challenging because if, if I say that in public, some people say I'm still a neo-Nazi for pointing that out. Some people doubt the authenticity of my turnaround or they're going to come at me with accusations of privilege and uh, how I'm an oppressor and I'm a colonizer and all sorts of things that cloud my judgment in this matter. But actually, everything I've learned about race, I've learned from listening to people who don't look like me. Right. Whether it's, it's reading or uh, following videos or speaking with them in person. And I, I think it's a great thing that we're very concerned about diversity nowadays. I think representation is important. I, I think we all need to make space for, for people who have been kept from the table for a very long time. But at the same time, to me, the most important diversity is diversity of thought. Because diversity of thought is what proves that race is a fallacy and that it's a lie. After the, the murder of George Floyd, there, there was so many things changed and happened in our society. And, and there are so many hashtags and slogans going around social media. And one of them that you saw all the time, typically uh, emphasized with little hand clapping emojis, was listen to black people. Mm-hmm. Now, if you really do listen to black people, you the first thing that will be very apparent is that their skin color doesn't dictate the way that they think. It doesn't dictate their their positions on every issue. Right. And right. as a matter of fact, an individual is an individual. Exactly. Exactly. And and that's that's the 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 ultimate harm that race does. It dehumanizes us by not seeing that unique individual human being. Yeah. And instead, all we see is their skin color. Our assumptions about the caricature, about what that particular ethnicity should be thinking and doing and wanting. Exactly. And and, and this goes for whatever complexion that, that race may affect, whether it's someone racialized as black or racialized as white or racialized as brown or yellow or red or what have you. The fact is, is that all, all these people are unique individuals, and while our society has revolved around skin color for centuries, I think we need to ask ourselves, do we want to have it continue to revolve around skin color? Because as, as far as I'm concerned, it hasn't worked out too well. It, it's not been a good thing for human beings to uh, have a group identity by skin color be a factor of, of how someone is treated in the society of, of what opportunities are available to them of what they have access to as far as uh, education and healthcare goes. And I fully understand this is an incredibly complex issue. We can't just like snap our fingers and be like, yay, racism's over, race is over. <laughs> like we're all colorblind now, but I, I think it is important for us to, to commit to, to not treat people any differently because of the color of their skin whether we're treating them poorly or we're treating them uh, extra special. Right. My experience is that, is that everybody just wants to be seen as the, the unique individual human being that they are. And, and I really believe that that should be uh, at the forefront of, of how we proceed in society, whether we're talking about individual interactions or uh, societal so-called systemic interactions. What you said about representation, I think, is a key 
pivot point on the conversation. As you said, it's incredibly complex. In fact, we'll probably steal that soundbite for our, for our promotion. It's incredibly complex. And many people, many of us humans, love to avoid the hard stuff. Eh, it's a little complicated. Let me go ahead and do this easy thing over here. Right. Let me just say, I don't see race. Therefore, I'm not a racist. Today, we have this phrase, anti-racist, anti-racism. There are books being written about it. And uh, the sense of, if you will, preventive maintenance against, un, as I said, unconscious bigotry. I have an entire chapter called Unconscious Bigotry and Powerful Peace. It is complex. And, it, and there is no one person who is right about it, no one group that's right about it, whether it's melanin-based group or not. But the representation is an acknowledgement. Even as you're saying, let's stop focusing entirely on race as everything because we can't subdivide human beings that way sensibly. You're also saying there are certain groups that have been underrepresented, have been screwed over, and that let's acknowledge that and you know do what we can. Right? There's you're saying both sides of the coin. It's not either or. It's not ignore it and I don't see race, and it's not let's just completely collapse as a society and focus only on taking care of the people who have never been taken care of before. Yeah, it, it's it's a matter of asking ourselves what our intentions and what our aspirations are. And and as a, a, a citizen of the United States of America, I'm, I'm kind of partial to the idea of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. I, I, I believe that those things are rights, as the founding fathers did, and at the same time, while they were buying and selling other human beings. Yeah. So it, it, this is, it, in, in mental health, and I'm not, I don't have letters after my name, but I hang out with a lot of people who do, and I kind of get a little bit of mental health chops through osmosis. But there's something called DBT, or dialectical behavior therapy. And the whole gist of it is that two seemingly con conflicting things can be true at the same time. And getting your head around that is is a, a beginning point for healing and for coping with trauma you've been through, and and I think it also it applies to the history of of human society and the history of the United States of America in, in the same way. So, because the founding fathers owned slaves, does that mean the idea of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness is bullshit? I I don't think so. I think it's it's a very noble aspiration. And I, I'm traveling in Europe right now, whipping out my passport all the time. And, and in, in my passport, that's towards a more perfect union. I, I yeah. think that that aspirational element of, of the Founding Fathers' thought was very, uh, very clear then. And I think it should be very clear now. And so when I look at the history of white supremacy in this country and around the world. And I also look at the, the, the great things that uh, this country has accomplished and our founding fathers have accomplished. I, I think about that. I, I, I feel that the Bill of Rights is based largely on that idea of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And those are rights that people have been denied since the beginning of this country because of the color of their skin. And I really think that that's the way our conversation should begin and, and should be guided. And instead of that, you mentioned anti-racism, which I'm not a fan of on, on all sorts of levels. Um, first of all, just from a logic standpoint, I'm a writer. Semantics are important to me. The meanings of words are important to me. And from a logic standpoint, if, if I call myself an anti-racist, if that's the way that I define myself, that that logically means that I cannot 
tell you who I am without racism. Hmm. And, and this goes for any anti-whatever, anti-bullying, uh-huh. anti-fascism. If, if you're anti, there's, there's you know, left-leading uh, American politicians define themselves as anti-Trump. Right, right. So what you're saying is a person <laughs> with that identity of an anti-blank cannot exist. If that's their identity, they can't exist in, in separation from that thing they are opposed to. As compared to simply saying, I'm here, I'm responding to reality. Uh, that person is saying, I exist because this thing exists. Exactly. You, you can't logically exist without it. Right. The, the, the other, among a host of issues of contemporary anti-racism is this focused on the idea of privilege. And the, 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 the concept is that if you don't have a lot of melanin in your skin, that you have privilege, it's, it's a luxury to not have to deal with racism. And, and that, to me, is also kind of offensive just on an on aspirational standpoint. Is that how we define our society, where the baseline is racism, and to be free from that racism is a privilege? That, that, that's the nature of privilege. If you have a bunch of 16-year-olds and one of them has his own car, that's a privilege because not all 16-year-olds have a car. Right, right. That, literally, of, that, that's how the, how the word privilege works. So right. rather than talking about privileges that were unfairly granted to people because of the color of their skin, I think we should be talking about the rights that have been denied people because of sure. the color of their skin. So opportunities were denied as compared to privileges were given to everybody in the group that happens to look like me. Exactly. And, and what this leads to is, is another belief of mine. And, and again, the, everything I'm saying here, is, these are all my subjective political opinions. <laughs> these aren't objective facts. These are, these are my subjective political opinions that I've come up with from my history as a, as a violent white nationalist for seven years. And then also for working the past 12 years to diminish racism in our society to combat violent extremism of all sorts, traveling the world, meeting with all sorts of people, hearing their stories. These are all the things that define where I'm coming from. But the, my, my controversial opinion that, that is, wouldn't be very popular nowadays is that white supremacy is a lie. The, first of all, throughout the, the, the four centuries where race has been a thing, and, and we need to remind ourselves that race was concocted by racists in order to perpetrate racism it race wasn't some like neutral objective fact law of physics that racists came along and exploited they invented race so that they could perpetrate racism so the the origin of race itself is inherently racist and then the the idea of who's white and who's not <laughs> yeah that's has never been n- nailed down in the past 400 years it still isn't today. Um, you, could, you could ask 100 people and get 100 different definitions of who's white and who's not. When I was yeah. an active white nationalist, one of our favorite pastimes was to question the, the, the pure-blooded Aryan Nordic blah, blah, blah of, <laughs> yeah, exactly. you know, anybody we didn't like. And, and it, when you can't define who's white, the, the idea of white supremacy – seems to be all the more difficult to get your head around with that aside let's say you can define who's white the fact of white supremacy is that it's never been about simply white people being in charge it's always been about which white people are in charge 
And this is evidenced by all sorts of objective historical facts, such as the naturalization laws of the 1790s that George Washington signed into law. They said that any land-owning white man could become a naturalized citizen of the United States. Mm-hmm. It didn't say any white man. It didn't say, oh, if you're white, come on over, we'll naturalize you because white supremacy. It said any land-owning white man. Right. And that translated to uh, the pre-Civil War South, approximately 8% of people you would call white owned slaves. The other 92%, while certainly better off than enslaved Africans, were actually much closer to those enslaved Africans in terms of social stature, in terms of wealth, than they were to the plantation owners. Back to opportunity. Opportunity was denied to them equally. Exactly. And, and so th- that's, that's why today when, when we, we talk about white supremacy and we say, well, all white people, you're taking part in white supremacy – and it's not that that's an invalid argument. Certainly, for if we have a 400 years where people are being denied opportunity because of their skin color, and then other people aren't being denied opportunity, that's going to have an effect on how we think and how we see each other, how our society works. And absolutely, we need to start undoing all of that and, and redoing a society where all people are valued and included. That's, that's my personal mission statement that I actually like trot out quite often to check myself. My mission statement is I want to bring about a society where all people are valued and included. And I trot it out when I find myself, I, I've pretty much sworn off social media except for like cat videos and pictures of, of <laughs> pizza and, and octopus videos as well. I like sharks, surfing, hockey, but it, it, when I find myself like getting into it in the comments with somebody and I get mad at them and I'm like, rah, rah, rah. I, I asked myself, Arno, is, is, is that working towards a society where all people are valued? And right. The answer is no. So I, I, I need to check myself and I, and I, and I think we as a society need to need to do that by all means. But at the same time, casting everybody with, uh, with a, a dearth of melanin in their skin as privileged, as oppressors, as colonizers, I, I think, does, does not do anything constructive. And if we're going to talk about atrocities like what just happened in Buffalo or like what happened in Christchurch, New Zealand, or in Utoya, Norway, or in Oak Creek, Wisconsin, and Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, El Paso, you could go down a very, very long list of white nationalist attacks. That kind of, of finger-pointing and uh, racializing is is – God's gift to them. It, it, it helps them recruit. It helps them get themselves whipped up into such frenzy that they can go around murdering people. The, the more racialized our society is, the more conducive it is to racism and the more conducive it is to racist attacks. There, there's, there's basically two steps to create a white nationalist. Step one is that person needs to identify as white. If that's not their main identity, then you can't move on to step two. And and when I was active in the late 1980s, believe it or not, if I went up to someone who I deemed white and I'm, I'm interested in recruiting them into my gang, more often than not, that person would be like, well, I, I'm American. You know, my great grandpa was came from Germany. I, 
I'm Lutheran. Like, you know, they're, they're going to have all sorts of identity groups before they go, oh, yeah, I suppose I'm white as well. Right. Like, that, that's a problem. You need that. To, you need to brand that person with a white racial identity. And if they don't accept that, you're dead in the water. You can't take the next step. Step two to create a white nationalist is to make a person feel persecuted because of their white identity. Mm-hmm. Back to so fear. When, when, when you have very well-meaning educators teaching this canon of, of privilege and oppression and associating it with race, they, they are actively, they're, they're effectively and actively recruiting white nationalists in the exact same way that I did as a skinhead in, in 1987. That's incredibly nuanced and incredibly clear to me as you're describing it, because you're saying that basically the more we do define people as white and not white, the more we enable the categorization and therefore the, the radicalization of those who are willing to, are susceptible to it among the, the, the so-called white group. Exactly. It's, it's a matter of like, do we want to make their job easier? Do we want to make them right, do their work right. for them? I have a, a, a great friend and, and hero and thought leader friend of mine named Chloe Valdery. Uh, she's an Afro-American woman about my daughter's age. And she created an a outfit called Theory of Enchantment, which you can find at theoryofenchantment.com. And it's about personal development. Like and probably a lot of parallels to to impact actual. It's really about like getting your own shit together internally and creating a a healthy relationship with yourself, like a genuine deep sense of self love, not arrogance, but just like a, a a comfort with who you are and your relationship to the world. And then you kind of expand outward from there. And now you, once you've established that, then you start working on your external relationships. And she does this teaching through pop culture. So she uses things as, as varied as from the writings of James Baldwin to the music of Kendrick Lamar, to the movie, the lion King, to all sorts of things. And, And from these, pieces of pop culture she draws out these really profound lessons and curriculum where you you learn about yourself and you once you do that you can start healing and creating peace in the world around you and she has three principles that the theory of enchantment is based on and the first one is you commit to see other human beings as unique individuals and not political abstractions that that to me alone is, is such a powerful commitment if you can make it. And, and it's so transformative, again, not just on individual relationships, but in systemic issues in society. The second principle is that if you criticize, you criticize to uplift and not to tear down. And the third principle is you do everything from a place of compassion. This is an incredibly simple, incredibly powerful, incredibly profound set of principles that can transform human life transform human society and i think that is is if if you need to call something anti-racism that truly accomplishes the logical meaning of anti-racism in in that it's something that diminishes racism in our society it's something that makes racism impossible if someone commits to it whereas the the classic contemporary definition of racism that's that's completely based on concepts of race and privilege and oppression, as I mentioned earlier, is, is actually a, a blessing to white nationalists and it makes their job much easier than it would be otherwise. 
That is, as you mentioned, so close to our own concepts, our own principles. You're talking about, you know, criticize to uplift. That's accountability one-on-one. Absolutely. It starts with the self, as you're talking about. She describes that she's focusing on helping an individual value themselves. That's where love and respect come from, self-love and self-respect. They can't exist in isolation. That's why we have so much disrespect in the male culture, just to use guys. And and I've been on, you know, every continent, about 36 countries, I've seen guys of every one of those nationalities and ethnicities, and we love to rag on each other. We love to tear (laughs) each other down. Part of it is cool, right? I mean, we love to... I, I love to to prank a guy, make him look like a dumbass. And pantsing in <laughs> high school is is it never stops, and we're still boys, right? But and boys will be boys without the the whole despicable con, uh, stigmatization of boys will be boys. Ergo, you know, rape date is cool because boys will be boys. That's not I'm not that's not at all what I'm saying. But boys Absolutely. will be boys because there's this generalized sense of 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 if you will association, friendship, even love expressed through unkindness like re- tricking a guy and doing something that makes him you know he falls down and you laugh at him that's right, fun right. but it's with respect but the fundamental idea of actual dignity i mean i can like let's go right back to race or gender or gender preference or sexual preference i can tease a friend of mine who's unlike me in any of those categories right. if it's a friend it reinforces our relationship the N-word, for example, is commonly used among individuals who want to talk to each other with, I, I'm not I'm not going to say it's a respectful word, but another word, haole in Hawaii. When I'm in Hawaii, haole is the, uh, the Hawaiian Polynesian version of the N-word for right. non-Hawaiians, right? <laughs> but if I'm called a haole boy by my close friend, it brings us closer together because he's identifying something about me in a playful, abusive way that reinforces our closeness. I, I've been called a, a wero. In, in a loving, loving fashion. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. When it's done with love and respect. And that's the, it's so hard to tease out what's love right. and respect. But there is a, a purposefulness to that. There's a, when we use words that are unkind, technically, you know, from right. the dictionary, sometimes bad is bad. Huey Lewis sang that song 30 years ago. Sometimes bad <laughs> is bad, <laughs> but sometimes it means good, right? I, I am, I'm, I'm just really, I can't wait to check out theoryofenchantment.com. Can't wait to see what she's talking about because it's so significant what she's saying. And I want to go back to semantics. As you mentioned, as we are authors, as we write and we, we care about words, you mentioned towards a more perfect union on your passport. Right. That word toward is so loaded. It says, by omission, we are not there. Exactly. It says we're trying, right? And that's what you said about the founding fathers, the slave-owning founding fathers. What they wrote and what they did didn't match. But if you look at the context of the time and say that their belief system was these people aren't people exactly like I mean people in my book or in my, in my constitution, then you can say, okay, this is how there's a reconciliation of the two things that look so opposite. And, and context is king. Well, and, and also, if you look at, you know, if you want a perspective of that time, and of course, this is a little after the founding of the country, but I, I've read two of Frederick Douglass's autobiographies, and he's, he's one of my favorite writers, uh, for one. For anybody who has not read uh, the biography, autobiography of Frederick Douglass, I cannot recommend it highly enough. The man is is just so he was so incredibly gifted as a writer, and this is a a, a human being who taught himself to read and write under mm-hmm. threat of death. 
Mm-hmm. Like if he was caught doing that, he, it could have meant he, he would be killed. And and so right. this is someone not someone who learned to read and write in a school, but someone who, who uh, under threat of of losing his life, braved that that condition to learn to read and write, and became not only a, a brilliant writer but a fantastic orator as well. And if you if you look back at what Frederick Douglass had to say, and really it, almost all of the rhetoric involving uh, race and white supremacy in this country leading up until very modern times, like through the civil rights movement, it was, it was about, we are human beings too, and we need to be treated as such. Malcolm X <laughs> famously said, you know, I, I'm a man, I'm a human being. I demand to be treated as such rather than, than perpetrating, not perpetrating, but, um, maintaining and and cultivating this idea of race which is really the, the source of the problem in the first place that says we're we're more alike we're more different than alike because of the color of our skin that all of the the rhetoric from Frederick Douglass Frederick Douglass up through Martin Luther King Jr and all the the greats of the civil rights movement were were about seeing our our common humanity and having a, a foundation there to work from and I, I think that is is what where our salvation lies, is is seeing ourselves in others rather and seeing other people in ourselves rather than finding reasons to to uh, emphasize our differences. And and again, this isn't to like gloss over our differences. I I love diversity in in a way that only someone who willfully deprived themselves of diversity for seven years can't. I I just got arrived in Geneva from London and both Geneva and London are incredibly diverse. Just walking down the street, you see people from all over the world speaking all kinds of different languages, very much like New York city or Los Angeles. And and those are all my favorite places to be. I, I I love that, that to me, diversity is a a sign of health. And if you look at like from a, a, biological perspective from a zoological perspective if, if you look at a coral reef or a rainforest the the way that you gauge the health of that ecosystem is by its diversity right a, a healthy ecosystem will be incredibly diverse the second you start to see any sort of monoculture happening in an ecosystem it is a sign of trouble it's a sign of failure and and tragically most uh, monocultures you see in ecosystems now are, are due to humankind and and the uh, thoughtless way we've treated this planet for so long but the the bottom line is that diversity is a healthy thing whether it's for a coral reef or it's for a human city I think the more diverse that that place is the healthier society is going to be well, there's a word for that, scientific word of biodiversity. One there you go. long word, bio meaning life and diverse, of course, a variety of things. And biodiversity on the reef or the jungle or the city, uh, the life diversity of Absolutely. human beings in the organ, in the in the the organism, <laughs> even our body. I mean, look at uh, look at when you talk about full on pedigrees, whether it's the royal families. Or displacement of the hips for the German Shepherd that's perfectly bred. Right, right. I mean, we who are Heinz 57th, and I, I don't know about your actual ethnic background, but mine certainly is. I look like a white guy. I have Viking tattoos and runes just like you do on my right. arms, on my body. But I think it's entirely possible to be extremely proud of one's heritage. And I am diverse, uh, you know, all Northwestern European, Celtic and Viking and such. And of course, a little bit of French in there because of the name. But 
But that doesn't mean that mine is better. It just means I'm grateful and appreciative and loving of those from whom I came. And I honor you, Black or Hispanic or Polynesian, for where you came from and your deep love and pride in your ancestors where you came from. They're not mutually exclusive. Absolutely. And that, that's a really important point to make. It, it actually takes a lot of wind from the sails of the white nationalist narrative. When, when you can make that point, I have, like you mentioned, I got all sorts of Viking ruins all over me. My, my whole left arm is a big sleeve of, of ancient Viking inspired artwork. And some of them I got back in the day, most of it I got recently. And actually on my left, the back of my left hand, I have a runic interpretation of Odin from the Aarhus runestone in Denmark. And I I got the tattoo in Denmark, actually, and I was sitting in Copenhagen at one of those fancy dessert joints where they give you the ridiculous milkshakes with all kinds of ice cream sandwiches and cookies and cupcakes hanging off of it. Me and my daughter were in there indulging, and it was a tiny little place, and and you were kind of right next door to the, the other people at the other table. And as I'm in there, there were a couple Arabic guys sitting at the table right next to us and they kept like looking over at my my fresh tattoo and they're kind of looking over and you know nudging each other and talking a little bit and, and i just said uh you know hey how's it going guys and they said oh yeah how, how you doing and and they're like yeah I like your is that a new tattoo it looks fresh and i said yeah and then the guy tells me he's like you know what that is that's uh that's odin that's from the aru's Runestone." Oh wow! He, he was he was like all stoked about it. He, he was <laughs> this is like uh, you know it, it was as if I I had a, a tattoo from his heritage, and I that that's something. It actually that that takes all the wind out of the sails out of the white nationalists when they try to tell a story about Vikings being racist. Because the fact is, is the Vikings certainly weren't choir boys. Um, There's some right. rough, rough dudes. And right. women, but they, they tended really only to kill, rape, and enslave other white people, mm-hmm. uh, other Vikings. There, there's no two countries on earth who have been to war more often than Denmark and Sweden. Right. And, until you put Norway in there, and then you got the trifecta of war for a very, very long time. But the, the Vikings had very peaceful, prosperous, diplomatic, and trade relationships with North Africa and with the Middle East. So if the Vikings were like these white warriors who hated anybody who wasn't white, why would that be the case? And this is thoroughly documented. So when when I hear, I do a lot of work in Scandinavia, and when I I hear white nationalists in Scandinavia going like, we got to get these Arabs out of here, I'm like, bro, um, Arabic people have been coming to Scandinavia for like a thousand years. (laughs) So this isn't like a new thing. And I think it's really important to understand our our history in a honest and open way like that. And and then at the same time, my most recent tattoo is the Punjabi symbol for Ikankar, which is the first words of the, the Sikhi scripture. Mm-hmm. I, I have a really r- amazing relationship with a Punjabi Sikh man named Pardeep Singh Kalika. He was the co-author of my most recent book. His father was murdered by a guy from my old gang on August 5th, 2012, along with six other people. And I, while I'm a Buddhist and I took a refuge vow, and like that like, makes you an official Buddhist, I'm really inspired by all human spirituality and, and particularly by Sikhi. And that's why I, I tattoo the symbols of that faith on my on my flesh and on the same hand just on the other on the side of it i have uh in uh hindi script 
which uh, is, is, is fun because when I, I in, in London all the time when I'm meeting people from India, I, I went and bought a pair of pants and the guy in the, uh, <laughs> the, the fitting room is like, oh, I like your tattoo. It says Charnikola, you know, it's something unexpected, but it's, it's a way we could like really be inspired by, by our entire human family and not just people who look like us. Exactly. Exactly. I'm proud of the Dubois family, but that doesn't mean I dislike the Smiths. Right. You know <laughs> right. I mean? Exactly. The same thing with my heritage, my, my ethnic heritage. It's not exclusive of the others. Maya Angelou said but what you're saying in a quick little, I'm, I'll butcher the quote, but effectively she said, travel is fatal to prejudice. Absolutely. And the more we experience the positivity of other people, of other groups that we identify as groups, right? Again, it's not binary. We're not white or not white. Right. Although those are two technically back to semantics. Those can be things. <laughs> we could also say African or non-African. We could say, uh, you know, uh, Asian continent or not Asian continent. These are these are technically accurate terms, but they're they're very murky in the clouding of the understanding of what humans are when we try to look at white or non-whites. I mean, that's a common phrase I've heard a lot, and it's probably not a very useful one for us as a people. Well, and I I hadn't heard the phrase non-white so often since back in my day. Because in the white my white nationalist days, that's how we looked at the world. There right. was white and non-white. This or that. And, and again, that, that's that's the hallmark of white supremacy is is looking at the world in in that kind of lens. Mm-hmm. There's an amazing book called Sapiens by an Israeli anthropologist named Yuval Noah Harari, who is uh, I I just love the way the guy thinks and writes. And Sapiens is a big, fat, thick book, and it's basically the true story of humanity from like 200,000 years ago till now. And the the book is full of all, all sorts of gems, and it reads like a, a fantasy novel. I mean, it's a great read. It's a lot of fun. It's not like a dry textbook. But one of the most poignant things in that book, is, as far as I'm concerned, is that Harari points out that before the Industrial Revolution, which we learn about in middle school, and before the Agricultural Revolution, which we also learn about in middle school, about 70,000 years ago, there was something that he defines as the cognitive revolution. And so this, for the first 130,000 years of human existence, we were basically just like little bands of chimpanzees running around, mm-hmm. picking roots, picking berries, you know, maybe eating ants out of an anthill or something. We, we never really could organize ourselves in a group larger than 50, the same way chimpanzees are today because we we just we didn't have that capacity to get everybody on the same page but 70,000 years ago and and why this happened then he doesn't know and and I, I you put get all kinds of crazy ancient alien stuff going on here if you want <laughs> I I love Giorgio Sukalos he's, he's one of my favorite guys but something happened 70,000 years ago where homo sapiens started telling stories and believing stories and the ability to tell and believe stories enabled us to organize ourselves in an unlimited scope. If you look at religion, it's, it's a perfect example of story nowadays. There's uh, all the great religions of the world, even all the more obscure ones. They're all stories and not to diminish anything of the, the power of the faith or, or their, their validity, but the, the bottom line is, is there a common story that people believe in? There's approximately 1.8 billion Muslims on this planet. They live all over the planet. They're from all sorts of different backgrounds. They speak 
a huge variety of different languages. And within these 1.8 billion Muslims, there are like hardcore conservative Wahhabi Muslims. And then there are like radical queer trans Muslims and everything in between. With tattoos, exactly. There's Sufis, there's Sunni, there's Shia, there's all sorts Ahmadiyya, there's all sorts of different variations within this 1.8 billion people. But the one thing those 1.8 billion people agree upon without knowing each other, without having any contact with each other, is that Allah gave his word to the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, who brought it to the people. That's that's a, that's the power of a story to organize people. If you look at the story of money which is also another story. It's it's whatever unit this is has some kind of value to it. Back in the day when, when paper money came out, it re- represented it was supposed to represent a sp- certain amount of gold you could exchange it for. Nowadays, it's this little plastic card I call my money spender, and I take it places and I can tap it on something and buy myself a sparkling water. And the vendor who I'm buying it from agrees on the story of money, as does our respective banks. And because we all agree on the story, commerce can happen, economies function. It, 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 it's again, it's a story. If you don't believe, if you don't buy into the story of money, it's not going to work for you, and you're not going to be able to take part in, in the world economy. So probably 98% of the human beings on this planet, of all eight billion of us, agree on that same story. So what this all means is that stories define our relationship with the world. My life is a, an example of this, and it's a pretty stark one. When I was a white nationalist, I believed a story that told me that the lack of melanin in my skin made me different than everyone else, threatened by everyone else, at the same time superior to everyone else, and at war with everyone else. And it it resulted in the most miserable seven years of my 51. I, yes, I under tried siege. To, tried to kill myself twice by slitting my wrists. Uh, it could be argued the entire seven-year period was an ongoing suicide attempt. Yes. And today, I, I intentionally believe a story that tells me human beings have far more in common than otherwise. And that we have the capacity to see ourselves in others and see others in ourselves. I, I believe that all human beings share an equal capacity to harm or to heal. And it's up to us what we're, our energy is going to be directed. And I also believe that this, this existence that we all co-create each moment is a basically good process to be grateful for. Believing this story... I literally travel all over the world. I go everywhere that white nationalists are terrified to go. And rather than be terrified, I do it with joy and gratitude. And I see family and I I see my fellow human beings with just a a sense of, of family. And while the world has certainly changed between 1987 and now, the biggest change is, is the story that I choose to believe to, that defines my relationship with the world. So I, I just think that we need to be very mindful about, about those stories and make sure that we're not, as Nietzsche said, to paraphrase, we're not becoming monsters in the, in the process of fighting them, mm-hmm. which can happen all too easily, as, as you well know, Rob, as, yes. you, know, you talked about at length and powerful peace. This is the end of part one of my Arna Michaelis interview. Hear the rest of this conversation in part two coming next week. Thanks for joining us on Beyond Your Limits with Rob Dubois, the podcast that helps you destroy self-limiting beliefs 
unchain your potential, and create the meaningful life you were made for. For more information about Impact Actual and the Impact Unchained course, visit impactactual.com. And be sure to subscribe on Apple iTunes or wherever you like to listen so you'll never miss a show. We'll see you next time on Beyond Your Limits with Rob Dubois.